So this evening we will continue our study in the Canons of Dort. We'll be looking at Article 1, uh, or Article 15, Heading 1, the Canons of Dort. We're looking at uh, the reprobation. Then from there we'll look at the letter of Jude, reading verses 3 through 16. So the Canons of Dort, Heading 1, Article 15. Moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings it out more clearly for us in that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. Those, that is, concerning whom God, on the basis of his entirely free most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure made the following decisions to leave them in their common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion but finally to condemn and eternally punish them having been left in their own ways and under this just judgment." not only for their unbelief, but also for their other sins in order to display his justice. And this is the decision of reprobation, which does not at all make God the author of sin a blasphemous thought, but rather its fearful, irreproachable, just judge and avenger. And if you open God's word to the letter of Jude, So the letter of Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now this will be our text, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you were once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until that judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, his disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they 
all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves to the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in chorus rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, at which feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom and utter darkness have been reserved forever. It was also these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, over the last couple of weeks we've talked about the doctrine of election and now we're going to talk about something else which is more of the other side of the story. Now I expect it wouldn't take long for you to find another member who has been passed over or not selected. It could have been passed over from a promotion or a college application. Maybe they're not picked for a part of a team left out by the selection process of a job or forgotten to be invited to a party or event. Or maybe it's a hypothetical scenario where a child is left behind on a family trip to Rome. See, while these illustrations are not direct parable about what we'll be talking about and investigating this evening, they do prime the pump for the realization that some are left out. So our theme this evening as we examine scripture is the doomed fate of the reprobate. And we'll look at this at four points. We'll see the ungodly attributes We'll examine why there are ungodly people. We're going to look at similarities and differences in this doctrine. And fourth, we're going to examine whether I'm in or I'm out. So commentators are quick to point out that the letter of Jude is one of the most neglected letters in the whole of the New Testament. And some will argue it's because of the negative content in the letter. See, Jude deals with ungodly people who are perverting the truth from within the church. He reminds them that these false teachers are a sign of the times, something that the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ predicted. See, the false teachers stand out because of certain characteristics, the first of which is they are ungodly. And we know they're ungodly people because we know what godly people look like. We know what is false because we have truth. We know what is wrong because we know what is wrong. Right, so we know what is ungodly because we understand rightly what a godly person looks like. See, and as the law is an outline of what Jesus' life demonstrates, a love of the Father and desire to do his will, a love for his neighbor and service to them, this is what the ultimate expression of a godly person looks like. So naturally, we should think of the ungodly as being opposed to the law of God. 
So he's someone who does not want to submit to God's will nor submit to his authority. But not only that, see, our godliness can manifest in a hatred for God himself. Ungodliness is a hatred for God's law and a hatred for God. And that can manifest in not thinking about him. See, God is not far, off, far from us, but we are far from him. See, God is found in everywhere, but is he found in the hearts of the ungodly? Are they stopping to think of him during their day, in their weakness? They're not drawing near to him, asking for supplication, asking for strength. It's most likely that their thoughts are just, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. They're not thinking about the depth and the breadth of God's truth. They're not thinking about Christ and his saving work that fills their hearts with gratitude and with joy. Nor are they eager to commune with him. There's no joy waking up in the morning, opening up their Bible and drawing near to God. They don't want to spend time with him as they read, as they meditate, and as they pray. There's no excitement on the Lord's Day waking up knowing that Jesus Christ, is meet, Jesus Christ is meeting them there for worship? There's no longing for the crown of glory to be placed upon their head, the desire to stand face to face with their Savior, to look upon all of his glory and splendor, paired with an anticipation for worshiping him for all of eternity. Nor is there the fear to offend him, See, there's no self-reflection of their actions, wondering if what they're doing offends God. They're only thinking about themselves, not only worry about what offends them or holding grudges too long that they feel their mental Rolodex. All these people who did them wrong. They let it fester like an open wound with pus and the putrid smell of gangrene. They're waiting for their time for justice. Nor do they want to please him. There is hardly a thought of doing anything that pleases to God. They don't recognize their day, or they don't organize their day of what is pleasing to God or how God might receive the most glory. They're only looking at themselves, filling their day with the desires of their flesh. The mantra of, if it feels good, do it, is just stuck in on repeat in their head. See, not only is that their theme song. But they pervert God's grace into sensuality. They twist God's grace to justify their ungodly living. They are enthusiastic and declare sin is okay because God's grace abounds. It's an opportunity for them to ignore what God commands and do what's pleasing to them. There's a force behind the original languages here, and the word is licentiousness and indecency. It's similar to what is expressed in Romans. They have dishonorable passions and pure hearts that lust after impurity and they're filled with unrighteousness. But for them it's okay because God's grace abounds. They say if Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior, he can atone for these sins, can't he? This is not a life that considers itself dead to sin, but alive in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ does not promise a Christian pilgrimage of freedom from any direction or rule, a life without a yoke. Jesus Christ says that he is gentle, that he is lowly, and that he'll give us rest, 
that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. See, life in Jesus Christ is not a yokeless pilgrimage. There is a yoke, but it's far lighter and far more unforgiving than that yoke of the law. And now if it's not evident already, these people are not Christian. See, Jude reminds us that they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You do not acknowledge Jesus as master and Lord. You can only serve one master, and they cannot serve Jesus Christ if they're too busy serving themselves. Serving Jesus Christ cuts into their time they could use to their own purposes. They convince themselves because of their pride not to humble themselves before the King of kings, before the Lord of lords. They are too busy serving me, myself, and I. Now, you might be wondering how, with such evidence of such rotten fruit, how that they crept in unnoticed. Now, Jude explains that they were successful at their infiltration to the church. They are here and they are causing problems. They're successful. It's because they're deceitful. They're stealthy. They're hiding in the shadows, deceiving unsuspecting people. See, Calvin reminds us that Satan sows his tares in the night while husbands are sleeping so that they may corrupt the seed of God. See, thieves and robbers who do their work in broad daylight are not the ones we have to worry about. They're just foolish. It's the ones who lurk in the shadows, who are patient, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. These are the ones who demand attentiveness and alertness. The other possibility is that they look like Christians. See, Paul warns the Christians at Corinth about false apostles and deceitful workmen who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, reminding them that even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light so they are not be surprised when Satan's servants act like their master. There are wolves with sheep's clothing, they're lurking, and they're hiding. These ungodly deceivers can fake their ungodliness. It's only three hours of the week to sow seeds of doubt at church. They present themselves as pies for three hours on a Sunday, here for a moment, then rushing out the door, subtle and quietly working on the unsuspecting. A good example of this is Absalom. He stole the hearts and kicked David's people away by false pretenses and an outward piety. And it worked because he drove David from Jerusalem. See, the motivation is high for the ungodly, especially if it advances the chief end, their greater purpose of glorifying themselves. See, with such a desire for destruction, trying to rip down what God is building, we can question, why are there ungodly people? Now, we'll look at this in two reasons of why false Christians roam around. The first might be evident to you, but the second might need a bit of unpacking. First, you probably rightly understand that these deceivers are because of sin, Adam and that sinful disposition. At the beginning of time, there was one who snuck in and disguised as something he was not, one who perverted the grace of God and deceived Adam in, and from there, the whole human race inherited a sinful nature, a nature filled with the guilt and pollution of Adam's sin, among with his sinful nature, a heart that is in enmity with God, but it is also a heart that hardens. We read from Bel- um, the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 84. It explains that the kingdoms of the 
the keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the word and church discipline. That the preaching of the word can open the kingdom, but also the kingdom of heaven is closed by the preaching of the word. Calvin explains that the preaching of the word can form a hardness of heart. God sends them a voice and they become more deaf. God sends them a light and they become more blind. He sends them prophets and they grow all the more ignorant. He sent them a remedy, but they do not want to be healed. See, the preaching of the word is just like plaster of a cast. Each sermon is another layer applied to the cast, increasing the hardness of their heart. Another sermon, another layer cementing their hardness of heart. And this is observed in many different places in Scripture. You can think of Pharaoh and Exodus. It was God who hardened his heart. Moses, a man with a message from God, spoke to Pharaoh, and God hardened his heart. Now, granted, this illustration has more to do with God hardening the heart versus the messenger, but we can look at other places like Ezekiel. God forewarns Ezekiel that he is sending them into a stubborn and rebellious people, a people that have no ears to hear or eyes to see. Ezekiel is commanded to speak whether they hear or refuse to hear. Or what about Jeremiah? He had the words of God put in his mouth and like fire would consume the people. There's also Isaiah who was faced with a similar problem, a people group who could not hear and not understand, who could, not, who could see but not perceive. But the stubbornness of the human heart is shown most effectively in Jesus Christ's ministry as he came to his own people and they rejected him. The Jews heard Jesus preach and Christ made miraculous signs that no one had ever seen before, yet they did not believe him. And not only that, it was the prayer of Jesus Christ, thanking the Father, keeping the truth from the wise and the understanding and revealing it to little children. Christ also kept hiding the truth, speaking in parables, especially concerning the kingdom of God. Paul reminds Timothy that there are those who are always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. See, the Jews did not understand the word preached to them because they were not among Jesus' sheep. They rejected the stone that became the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to. And they were destined to because they did not receive God's electing grace. This is why there is a continuing hardening of their hearts, because they were passed over and left in their sin. A sin was the first reason for their ungodliness, a sinfulness that perverts the grace of God and denies Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. The text indicates another reason why they were designated for condemnation. And from the text, we'll examine when this designation took place, who was designated for, and what what they were designated for, and who was designated. So first, when did this designation take place? And it happened long ago, the text says. If we were attentive to the, during the series of, through the canons, we understand that election take, took place before the foundation of the world. A decree by God that was not based upon any merit in a person or foreseen faith, but only by God's good pleasure, exercising his grace and his mercy to those miserable sinners. See, the non-elect at the same time experienced their fate. 
But instead of election, they were passed by God, left in their sin and misery. And from there, from before the foundations of the world. And who are these designated ones? In God's decree of election, the sinners who did not receive God's electing grace are known as the reprobate. God passes over certain individuals in their corrupt condition, leaving them in their sin and in their misery. And this is important to understand. They are not sinful because they are reprobate. Rather, they are reprobate because they do not receive God's electing grace and they are left in their sin. See, if you say that they are sinners because they're reprobate, we make God the author of sin. See, God is not the author of sin, nor is he the reason for ungodliness. It would be like blaming the doctor who did not heal you for the reason you were sick. The reason that you were sick is because you forgot to take your vitamins or you were burning the candle at both ends. There's no one to blame but your own free will. God is not the reason for your sin, just as the doctor is not to blame for your sickness. Jude also explains what they are designated for, and that's condemnation. And why are they condemned? It's not because of the decree of God, but this is what their sin deserves. See, the reprobate do not obey the word of God when it is made known to them, And that choice will be charged against them. It's the consequences of their actions. So when we speak of condemnation, we're talking about the sentencing that their sin deserves. It can also be called damnation. There will be an outpouring of God's wrath. And the place where they'll experience this is hell. The destination of God's elect, electing grace is in heaven, but the destination of being passed over by God is hell experiencing the wrath of God's judgment for their iniquities. And I understand that this is hard to deal with, the concept of an everlasting punishment or damnation. But the reprobate, because of their sin and their hatred for God, each of the reprobate will go to hell willingly and not forced. Realize that no one goes to hell against their will. It is right where they want to be. Even under the wrath of the living God, they would rather endure this suffering than serve him. And as we have investigated the doctrine of reprobate and already looked at the doctrine of election on a larger scale, you might have noticed that there's similarities, similarities and differences within this doctrine. The uh, election and reprobate are similar, but they're different. Both, in both reprobation and election, the goodness of God is on full display. His goodness is displayed in electing those who did not deserve it. God shows to them grace. He shows to them mercy. Also, God's goodness is demonstrated by his justice. God's righteousness requires to make sure that the world's wickedness is punished. He does not turn a blind eye to iniquity. There will be a time when all sin will be no more. It will be purged from the presence of God. And suppose we remember from the Belgic Confession study that God is a simple being, not not a composite being, comprised of attributes like justice and mercy and grace, 25% of that, 25% of this. He is all those things, all the time. God is righteousness. God is love. God is holy. You can't separate his attributes, nor can they be parted out. 
All of God is on display for us to marvel at. See, if God did not elect and left us in our sin and misery, we would know nothing of his grace and mercy, but only his justice. But if God elected everyone by his grace and mercy, we'd know nothing of his righteousness. So in the reprobate, God shows us his righteousness as he demonstrates his justice and his wrath. But there are also differences between reprobation and damnation. And it's important to remind you of this difference because Article 115 of the Canons of Dord is trying to ensure the reader that God is not the author of sin. So when we try to understand this doctrine, we need to understand that God's will determines the reprobate. It was God's passing over sinners that caused them to be reprobate. It was not reprobation that caused them to sin. And this is crucial. Just like you cannot blame the doctor who does not heal you for the reason that you're sick. So if God's will determines the reprobate, it's sin that determines their damnation. It was man's free will that determined his final place. God is not responsible for man's action. Therefore, God is not the author of sin. God's passing over did not turn sheep into wolves. If it did, God would be the author of sin. But we know that there are always wolves with a bloodthirst for sin. See, the only transformation that took place was for the elect. That once there was wolves with a bloodthirst for sin who became sheep of his flock. And this should remind us of the severity of sin. The reprobate hate God so much that they would rather experience his justice and his mercy and his wrath than his mercy and his grace. So you could leave the gates of hell open and no one would try to find their way to heaven. Sin hardens the heart and creates a hatred for God. So we should not take lightly sin. It's not something to dabble with because it hardens hearts. It's humbling to think that even the reprobate and their eventual end and damnation fulfills God's sovereign decree. Everything in creation is working towards the glory of God. On the day of judgment, there will not be a sad, it won't be a sad day because Satan triumphant is triumphant, leading some to eternal damnation. No, both elect and reprobate display God's goodness, either in his mercy, electing some to Jesus Christ, or in his justice, leaving the reprobate to themselves in their sins and misery. In both ways, God's goodness is on full display for all creation to behold. Now, having wrestled with these doctrines and the two different outcomes, You might be wondering to yourself, am I in or am I out? And there are two possible outcomes, which is hard. And it's a sobering question that picks apart your life and what you believe. It is a question that requires a lot of self-examination. See, Paul asked the Corinthians to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith, to test themselves. Self-examination doesn't happen for the few minutes that the law is read on Sunday. Nor does it happen or reserved for the week before you come to the Lord's table. The entirety of the Christian pilgrim should be infused with self-examination, probing to see if you are thinking of your Savior throughout the day, wondering about what kind of love propelled God to love such a miserable sinner. Are you dissecting your day to see if you can spend more time with him and are you eager to when you have a spare moment? Are you reflecting on 
what you might offend, what you might do to offend him, how you're wayward or disobedient, or have a heart that's cold and distant. Do you love the one who purchased you with his blood? Or do you only love him because of what you can get from him? Is your day spent analyzing ways you can please him or how you could be a better servant? See, these are hard questions to wrestle with. And examining yourself might make you feel like you're part of the reprobate. But what you feel might be far from your reality. See, Christ is not a moral litmus test. He's your Savior. He chose you. You didn't choose him. Your hope is not in how often you think about Christ during your day or how much you want to please him. Your hope is in the cross. That Christ has accomplished what you could not. He has finished the race. He has checked all the boxes. He has restored what was broken. Your hope is in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Him and Him alone. Nothing else. There's no I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. It's only Christ all the time. See, this is the hope for Paul and the Corinthian church. And it's my hope for you that you realize that Jesus Christ is in you and that he will complete the work that he started. Now, Canons 116 is helpful as it explains that if you have not actively experienced within you a living faith in Christ or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorying in God through Christ, not to count yourself among the reprobate, but rather continue diligently in the use of the means to desire fervently a time of more abundant grace and to wait for it with reverence and humility. See, remember, Christ is gentle and lowly in heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he has accomplished for you on the cross so that you don't have to wear the heavy burden of the law. And progress is still progress. You need not look around at others to determine where you are in your Christian pilgrimage. Just look at Christ. Like we heard this morning, whether you have a faith that is weak or strong, it's still faith. And in 116, the authors remind us that It's in God's character so that he will not break a bruised reed or a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now a helpful illustration that will cement this in our mind comes from Pilgrim's Progress. You might remember when Interpreter takes Christian into the room and sees the fire burning against the wall and the one standing by it is casting water upon it. But the fire burned higher and hotter. So Christian asks what this means and the interpreter explains that the fire is the work of grace in your heart. And the one casting water upon it, trying to extinguish it, is the devil. Then the interpreter then takes Christian behind the wall and shows him a man with a vessel of oil in his hand who is secretly continuing to cast oil on the fire. And Christian asks what this means. And he says, this is Christ who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in your heart. See, Christ is actively working. 
He is holding you in his hand. There's nothing that Satan can do in his most clever schemes that can take you from him. No matter how insignificant you think your faith is and how small your flame is, he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Now also, in the Pilgrim Progress illustration, did you catch what was used by Satan and Christ? It was oil and water. Now what happens when you place water on an oil or grease fire? It spreads. See, Christ can take Satan's most clever schemes and use them for his good because Satan cannot see the work that Christ is doing in your heart. He does not know he's pouring water on a grease fire. This is the wisdom and the power of your Savior. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there will be a time when Satan tries to convince you that your weak faith is because you are part of the reprobate. But he who started a good work in you will complete it. Don't let Satan make you look at yourself and at your works. You look at Christ. Look at his work and his great love for you. That while you were a sinner, he died for you. And if this is so, how much more will he love you and defend you when you're part of his flock. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you soberly, understanding the weight of such a heavy doctrine that there are some among us who may never know your electing grace. Lord, we thank you for such a rich privilege of knowing you because of our electing grace. Thank you that you've made us receptive to the word and not hardened our hearts to the preaching of it. Lord, we'd ask that you continue to work on us. Lord, that we have the confidence to know that Satan and his schemes are trying to derail us, Lord, but that you are a God who does not put out a smoldering wick that weak faith is still weak, that you will work in us to complete your purposes, that we must wait with patience and reverence, looking to you in all that we do. It's through Christ's name that we pray. Amen.